what I've learned a long time ago is most of these career decisions I've made, I don't think most people would have made them. And you know what? When I was younger, I'd be like, well, I don't know why I'm doing these things. I don't know this is the right career move. And at the end of the day, I'm like, who gives a shit? I don't give a shit. It's you again. I go, no, it's it's a different business. It's a different business model. And he whispers to me, please, dear God, do not do this again. That influenced me for the rest of my life. And so to land the plane on Rosetta Stone, why am I talking about this? So that was a very crazy time. People that know me are like, is Matt going to talk about all this stuff? Hopefully my kids never listen to this. It was the first time where I could think to myself, I can think of so many use cases because of this technology. I just have to completely change what I'm doing in my career. And I don't think you have in many points of one's career where you have that moment so early where you're like, I have to do something different. Hi, this is Matt Hewlett. I am the CEO and president of PetMeds. We're the most trusted online pet pharmacy in the United States. And what we do is provide medication and non-medication products to make your pet healthier. Nice. And how long have you been running the business? About 10 months. Oh, I forgot my age, which I know you asked me to tell you, but I decided to redact it. I'm a young 52 years old. Hey, you look super young in your picture here, so. Well, that picture 10 years ago. Oh, it makes sense, right? Yeah. I've seen some newer ones. You have glasses on the older, on your LinkedIn one, you don't. You look about 25 on that one. So you're taking the pet meds? <laughs> we talked about this prior to recording, but it must be the Coke Zero and the Scotch. Okay. There you go. Good mixture. All right. Well, we always <laughs> learn the habits of these successful entrepreneurs. So thank you for sharing one. So you started that 10 months ago? Yeah. PetMeds is a public company. We're a small cap public company. We do close to $300 million in revenue. We've been profitable. And also it's a 26 year old business, which is kind of unusual to say these days. It's a small cap, but 26 year old business. So it's, it's an interesting business to take on. On NASDAQ, the ticker symbol is pets. Is there anything else we should know about you, I guess, uh, overall, before we rewind it to your life story? That's it. Interview's over. Okay. Well, nice. Well, thank you for coming on. I guess this is a long line of, my friends call it my schizophrenic career, because I've jumped around in every vertical imaginable. And the typical theme through my career has always been turnarounds, or I guess the euphemism now is transformations meaning there's something wrong and I'm sent in to fix it. And we're in the pet space, which has been red hot. It typically does really great as a vertical in recessions because people these days are thinking about their pets just like they do their own family members. So when it comes to their own needs, whether it's food or their own health, they think about the pet as part of their own family. So it stands up pretty well in recessions. This is a business that has been around for a long time, kind of lost its way in terms of growth for a bunch of different reasons. And I'm kind of in early in this journey to turn it around. You said with your checker pass, I also know, I think we could talk about, you have a book coming out. Yeah, it went out on May 17th. It's called Unlock, Five Questions to Unleash Your Company's Hidden Power. What's your website for it? It's called startupwhisperer.com. I own the trademark. So you are the startup whisperer? Yeah, I don't know. I think I haven't done startups for years. I get calls a lot for... I think I feel like the old man of the internet at times. Wall Street Journal called me a couple times to do a story on how should entrepreneurs operate during a recession. And there's a lot of playbooks for that. And I get a lot of calls related to startups. And I invest a little bit in startups and have lots of friends who are in startups. But I myself, I would not call a startup founder at all. I've never been a startup founder. I have done startups where there's typically some issue, again, that transformation theme. 
So yeah, I do think I'm a whisperer and I've been through a lot of hairy problems, no pun intended to the pet space, but yeah, I liked that name early on in my career and I just kind of stuck with it. And eventually I think someone's going to offer me a million or two bucks for it. When you joined PetMeds 10 months ago, is, are you doing it to do a turnaround as well? Yeah, it's a public company turnaround. Prior to that, I helped turn around because you don't do it by yourself as a leader. Rosetta Stone, which is a widely known brand in language learning. But yeah, definitely a turnaround. And it's not like anything's wrong in terms of the fundamental business, but I find that a lot of businesses over time really kind of lose their way and don't like to cannibalize themselves. They don't like to change based on what's happening in the macro environment because they like the micro environment very well. Just think about yourself. You know, you get up, you do probably three or four of the same things every day in terms of your breakfast and your, I guess maybe you're not commuting these days and you get used to it and companies are like that. So after 20 years plus, businesses kind of fall into a rhythm and no matter what happens outside the company's walls or virtual walls, companies tend to not change. It's very difficult for them to change. And so in those environments, I'm typically brought in to shake things up and try to get them to change their market position. Yes, because I saw the Rosetta Stone. I want to give, we can go in chronological order of what you've done and how you've got to here. But I think it, maybe it makes more sense now. You've given a little bit of summary of people who usually bring you in. You try to help fix companies, turn them around. And I think that's something that obviously all of us can learn from. But when you're talking about Rosetta Stone, actually, I came across this tweet the other day. Do you know when the Rosetta Stone was found? Oh, it's like 26 years ago. Some of the pet meds. It's been a while. Oh, not, not the fucking company. The actual Rosetta Stone. Oh, oh. <laughs> I can give you a hint or more of a hint. I, I, I had no clue. I thought it was thousands of years, but it's not. Like a thousand AD? I don't know. This is basically 1800. It says 1799, which I th that was sooner than I thought. But I recently visited the pyramids. So they're saying that it was discovered by the French shortly after they arrived in 1799. The Rosetta Stone would still be today part of a back alley wall and a random Egyptian flea market, which I totally believe because it's kind of trashy there. And they actually, a lot of the pyramids, people don't know. They like take the stones and the locals would like use them in their own buildings. I mean, part of it's falling because over time or whatever, but some of them, they just steal the, the stones so they can use it for their buildings. Oh, interesting. And by the way, I didn't, I thought you meant when it was first carved. I knew because uh, Napoleon, I believe, brought it back to France. And then it's now sits in the Museum of Natural History in the UK, I think, in London. Well, all the stuff they stole, right? Yes, yes, right. <laughs> to the winner goes the spoils. Yeah, I've been there too. Because I'm like, yeah, I'm like, well, how did they have all this Egyptian stuff? Oh, they weren't given it either. They just magically found its way there. So, anyways, that was interesting. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you didn't think it was interesting, but uh, interesting enough. So, well, all right. Well, I guess we can go ahead and do you want to rewind it to whatever point in the year story that we want to get started with, and maybe you can give us the year and age you were, and we'll just kind of build up to today. Sure. I've always been, in terms of my professional career, if you could say it's been professional in my college days. If we started there, and I'll be somewhat cliff notey, the let's call it early 90s in Seattle. I went to the University of Washington, was trying to figure out what to do. There's a recession forming then. And I was not a computer literate person. I really didn't even use computers that much. I didn't even know how to use an Apple II, believe it or not. Did a little bit of light programming when I was younger, like programming games on BASIC on a Commodore 64, but really wasn't that attracted to computers. And then over time, I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. And then everyone in my graduating class was working at Microsoft or getting interested in companies. And so at the time, I had an internship 
at a software company, but I was shrink wrapping, believe it or not, product boxes. So I had like a, I don't know, a hairdryer thing. And I was actually shrink wrapping product boxes when you actually physically bought software on magnetic media. So floppy disks and selling it for $800 a pop per seat. And I started out doing that because I, in essence, got found out from this internship I had where I was at a reinsurance brokerage and I called myself a database programmer. I had no idea what I was doing. I had like a SQL book up on my desk and I was sitting there trying to figure out what the hell to do. And the manager kept sitting behind me and I think they quickly figured out within day two, this guy is not a database programmer. So I was at this internship and I started getting associated with software. It was a company called WRQ. It was in Seattle. Basically what they did is they connected PCs to big iron. So mainframes, mini computers, old iron, like AS400s, HP mini computers, software that enterprises really ran on as a big part of their business. So databases, HRIS systems. And the only way you could access them was to have a dumb terminal that would access. So people would have a PC and a dumb terminal on their desk. And this software actually had a little window on your PC that connected your PC to this big computer. And so that was the first job that got me excited about software. And so I became a software intern at that company for a couple of years and really helped fund my college. And it was a great company in terms of how it was run. It was a great culture. And it really got me excited around the idea of network computing. So we are connecting PC users remotely using TCP IP and other network protocols, connecting to all these different systems and Unix. And then one day I downloaded the NCSA Mosaic browser, which today is Firefox. And the founder of that was a guy named Mark Andreessen, who obviously became very famous when he started Netscape. But I downloaded this browser that he created with another gentleman and compiled it on a Sun mini computer. And for the first time, I could see the internet graphically and it blew my mind. I was like talking to people halfway around the world. I was looking at earthquake data. All of a sudden, everything I could possibly imagine. At that point in time, there wasn't that much that was graphical opened up to me. And I thought to myself, I have to figure out some job in Seattle to get into the internet somehow. And, and that kind of set me off on a, a multi-year journey that we can talk about in a second. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn a science-based approach to the art of persuasion, selling and motivating yourself from Daniel Pink, or improve your negotiation skills from Chris Voss. Or you can even learn how to be a disruptive entrepreneur from Richard Branson. And now with over 180 classes, from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Per the suggestion of my wife, I'm actually taking a non-business class right now. It's with Emily Morse, and she's teaching me how to be a better lover. I've been taking meticulous notes, so we'll see if Emily's tips come in handy tonight. I highly recommend you check it out. This holiday, give one annual membership and get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash millionaire today. That's masterclass.com slash millionaire. Term supply. Hey there, millionaire interview listeners. We're going to take a quick second to talk about Hover, one of our sponsors. Have you ever thought about starting your own business, creating a brand, sharing your wealth of knowledge with the world, using your years of experience to create something for yourself? Hover wants to help you take that first step in getting your ideas off the ground. 
If you have a brand that you've always dreamt of building or a business you want to take online, the first step is finding your domain name. Hover makes this super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, easy to use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly humans. It's never too late to step up to the plate and share what you have to offer. Getting online has helped thousands of people around the world reach new heights with their businesses. In addition to classics like .com, you can get extensions like .shop, .tech, and .art with over 400 more to choose from. You'll be able to find that perfect domain name for your business, one that's memorable, relevant, and boosts your brand. You can buy a domain, set up custom email boxes, and point it to your website in just a few clicks. If you ever run into trouble, help is just a phone call or chat away. Secure, simple, and reliable, Hover is a trusted and popular choice amongst millions of people launching any kind of brand or business. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with the perfect domain name, head to hover.com forward slash millionaire to get 10% off your first Hover purchase. Yeah, and then, so that was the late 80s, early 90s while you were in college. And I guess you went to University of Washington. That, is that in Seattle? Yeah, that's in Seattle. So that's where you are, late 80s, early 90s. You're saying all this computer tech stuff that I don't know, that I'm sure some people know. <laughs> but we have an idea, right? I guess it's early start of the internet and networks, like you were saying. And I guess that got you interested in computers. Yeah, and it got me interested in computers, but it also got me interested in really compelling use cases to make the computing that I saw corporations do that was really complex. I threw out a lot of acronyms and words and stuff. And like at the time I'd go home and tell people what I was doing. They're like, I don't understand what you're doing. Well, especially then, I think at least we all have a better idea of what the internet is now in the network. So at least then I would have no clue what you were talking about. Yeah, but it was like the first time when I saw the browser that all these different addresses and IP addresses and things you had to do using text were opened up to you graphically so anyone could point and click and navigate the internet without any computing knowledge. And to me, I was like, wait a minute, this is a completely set of use cases that were mass market. Yeah. You don't have to buy your own Hustler magazines anymore. You can just go on there and find everything. <laughs> Unfortunately, at the time, everything was really slow. So in your house, it was 28.8 modems. And so you have to sit there for a long time. Or if you're at your corporation and doing that kind of stuff, certainly someone in your network administration group would catch some weird packet activity at midnight. But you got glimmers of what the internet would look like fast at your company. And then at, at your home, you'd kind of be subjected to really crappy speeds. But you could see at that time, I did at least, this huge opportunity to figure out how to play in a completely different way than no one, no one has ever been able to do before because the compute power was sitting somewhere else instead of your PC. You're accessing computers that were very powerful and you could do that in a very simple way. In my mind, I was like, wait a minute, I could run a database query in Tokyo if I wanted, or I could run a query on a huge IBM mainframe if I wanted to, or a Unix machine. To me, I was like, wait a minute, the power on my desktop is just a window into an infinite amount of power and compute, which obviously today your listeners would be like, okay, he's talking about cloud. And so in many ways, I at an early age thought to myself, I have to figure out how to get involved with this somehow because this is going to be huge. It's going to change everything. And then you're like 30 years from then, I'll be able to rip people off and sell them NFTs. Is that what you're thinking? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm not a huge NFT person. I've created one. 
I've posted to say, I have an NFT on OpenSea. It's like a picture of my foot or something, just to say I did it. But no, that's that we could go on the Web3 discussion too. But it was the first time where I could, I, I could think to myself, I can think of so many use cases because of this technology, because of the internet. I just have to completely change what I'm doing in my career. And I don't think you have in many points of one's career where you have that moment so early where you're like, I have to do something different. Oh, it makes sense. I mean, it, it's good that you had that foresight then as well. So where did you go from there? You didn't tell us what company you were with. You kind of told us about the company, but. Yeah, it was called WRQ. I think it's still around. Now it's called Attachmate WRQ, but those old systems still exist. And, you know, there's a still need for that software. But very quickly, I realized the same principles of what we were about connecting a small thing to a big thing could apply to the consumer. So there was a company in Seattle called Progressive Networks, later became Real Networks, and it's still a public company, not anywhere near where it was in its glory days to when I started. And this was a company that was offering streaming audio on the internet that didn't exist. In fact, the only way you could really enjoy streaming audio really wasn't streaming is you click on a page and you'd wait a long time for that audio clip to download. And then you could listen to it. It could be an hour or so. And so this technology streamed in little bits and bytes to your desktop to enjoy something in real time. And I remember like the first time I listened to a Mariners game live, I thought to myself, wow, this is actually a compelling use case and does connect with that thesis I had around the internet changing everything. So it was a company called Progressive Networks. It was very early in its stage of existence. I was the first product manager that ran this thing called The Real Player, which was at that point not really a popular application. And by the time I left the company, it was being used by hundreds of thousands of people in terms of downloads every day. It was almost as popular as the browsers themselves. And it was a fascinating place to be. And we went from a small 50-person company when I started to a company with over a 1,000 people. We went public with a huge IPO, lots of success, and then became a more troubled company over its life for a variety of different reasons. But when I was there, it was kind of like the heyday of internet companies. So like think about like the heyday of being at Facebook or Twitter or Coinbase. That's kind of like what it was. And it was a great place for me to learn product management. I ran the product there for consumers and I learned about subscriptions. I learned about direct-to-consumer. It was a great place to learn. I was working 90 hours a week. Everyone that I worked with was actually incredible. They've gone on to do amazing things. A couple of the folks that are at Amazon started out at Real Networks and they're pretty senior execs there. Lots of folks went on to create their own companies and become CEOs. And I would say that Real Networks is kind of an unsung hero in Seattle in terms of generating a ton of talent that have gone on to do amazing things. But in conclusion on this story with this period, this was kind of me going from WRQ, which was a very sleepy but successful enterprise company, $100 million in revenue, but not very cutthroat, had a culture of getting along in collaboration. So I call it the Barney the Dinosaur kind of culture to Mad Max Thunderdome. It was very hardcore, very results-driven, super competitive intellectually. And so you couldn't have picked a different hop, skip, and a jump from one culture to another. You're 26 to 29 grade when you're at Real Networks. Obviously, a few years before that, you're a little bit younger. But to see two different work environments, I think that's always helpful. Because sometimes if you just had good bosses growing up, you don't realize like how bad shitty bosses can be. Or 
It's not like one was bad or one was good, but just different cultures, you know, to me, like Mm -hmm. that definitely helps a lot. And that it's funny, your real player, I I looked it up. I definitely remember that. It's like the Windows Media Player today, although I don't think people really use that anymore, but I definitely remember using that. And I just was Googling it. And actually they have the domain real.com, which is, I'm sure that's worth a lot too, R-E-A-L. But I definitely remember that player. I'm sure anyone who is having music, whether you put a CD in or whatever, I think everyone used that application to like listen to it. I can't stress this enough, it was the app to use other than a browser. And then there was this huge war between, it wasn't just Microsoft versus Real Networks, it was also Microsoft versus everybody. I forget what year it was, 1999, no, earlier than that, 1996. Bill Gates wrote this memo when he was CEO of Microsoft at the time about basically, I forget the title, but we got to get our shit together around the internet. I think it was the internet tidal wave is what it was titled. And then that completely catalyzed the company from thinking about PC desktop software to being basically, I call it a cloud company, but an internet company. So they really went after, at that time, Netscape and the browser wars with their product, Internet Explorer. Now it's called Edge. I don't think anyone uses it compared to Chrome. And then with us, they competed with us as wanting to have the pipeline, the stream, pun intended, between the listener and the content with their Windows Media Player. And there was a bunch of battles that went on between anyone that was doing internet products and Microsoft, with many of the players basically saying to Microsoft and the the government, because the government got involved in terms of monopolistic practices, hey, Microsoft owns this software on the desktop, and anytime I click on something to either watch something on a web page or listen to something, it seems like Microsoft's associating their products with that content versus the other company's products. Sound familiar? We've seen this so many times. You even see this with Apple and their subscription wars with Fortnite and Spotify and others. There's this dance between platforms wanting to be monopolistic and associating their advantage against you. And it's happened for years. So in our case, Microsoft really wanted to get into the streaming business. They wanted to own everything on the internet. And so we claimed associating their Windows Media Player with our content. We eventually did a deal with them so they could stream it. We did some skillful deal making, let's say, and actually made some of the content that we licensed them non-compatible with the Windows Media Player, which really upset them. And I've used this example before. I felt like King Leonidas of Sparta, you know, in 300 with all the arrows coming at me. It was like Microsoft's wrath was on us. And so we spent many, many years eventually fighting that and winning and getting like $800 million plus in a settlement with Microsoft. But it's hard to fight someone who's that big and not have the scar tissue. So I left before we settled Microsoft. I was right there through the wars there, the streaming wars, as they were called, to start a different company. I'd been there for almost three and a half years or so. And I thought, okay, I've run a group. I have people I'm managing. We went public. I made money as a young man. And I thought, hey, you know, I want to do something different. And I did another startup from that with some of the people from Real Networks. But that was a really interesting experience because it's kind of like... You know, if you ever go from bingo to checkers, then to chess, that was kind of the progression for me career-wise. I was like, okay, I'm playing completely in a different league. I'm trying to be a starter for the Yankees versus the farm team. I can't think of the analogies I'd throw at you, but it was as radical of a career shift mentally, culturally, speed, velocity, which are different. It was just so radically different. And it foundationally changed how I looked at things early in my career, this experience with Real Networks. But so from Real Networks, you're a W-2 employee, and then you go to start your own company. So that's a big difference too, right? Completely different. And so this guy that I knew at 
Real Networks. He was like the coolest guy I'll never be. If he ever listens to this, you'll laugh. Maybe. He discovered the Nine Inch Nails, the Presidents of the United States of America, which were pretty popular for a while. He was like a, he was an A&E rep, which is a person who finds discovering talent at Sony. He was our biz dev guy at Real Networks. And then he had this idea that all this entertainment stuff is going to go online. It's going to be short form because no one's going to want to watch a movie on their phone. That was the thesis at the time. Of course, we're all watching movies on our phone now. Adult movies. Adult movies. But, you know, like he really early on said, like, it's all going to be short form entertainment and the entertainment's going to be different. We didn't actually think TikTok would be a reality or Instagram. We didn't actually envision all of that. It was just pre-YouTube. But he had this thesis, and like most entrepreneurs, pretty darn early, maybe earlier than we should have been. But to create an entertainment company on the internet, license content primarily from student filmmakers, shorts. And the thesis was, hey, these shorts actually have well-known stars. We can get them basically for free. We can own the rights in perpetuity and start putting content up that we curate. And at the time, Miramax was a pretty big studio, obviously fell on bad times. They were acquired by Disney, but there was some bad behavior by the CEO. But there was a emphasis for independent film. There was an emphasis for cheaper digital creation of content. Again, this is way before UGC, way before YouTube, UGC user-generated content. So we wanted to create a brand on the internet that had bite-sized entertainment. Let me help and jump in here a little bit more, if you don't mind. So this was in 1999, right? Mm hmm Okay. So you and who's the mysterious man? Mika Salmi. Okay. So you and him go from Real Networks and say, hey, let's go start our own company, which is called? It's called Adam Films. Okay. And so your, your whole premise then is that we're going to go find people to make short films, like you said, TikTok back in 1999? Yeah. The whole premise was the internet's big. People want stuff to watch, not just news and sports. They want entertainment. But the entertainment itself is going to have to be bite-sized because the form factor, your PC, your phone, is going to change the type of duration that you sit in front of that device, but also the style in which that content is going to be shot. And so we thought licensing short films would be a great way to bootstrap the business, get people watching. And then we quickly went into animation as well. So flash animation, which was really popular at the time. Yeah, it was really easy to actually acquire, but also easy to enjoy. So we went out and collected a library of content that was really fit for the internet at that time and created a company around it. And so how much money did you raise to get started? We raised a lot of money. How much is a lot? Our last round, and this, I think I'll tie this into current day. So people may think, oh my God, this guy is the old man of the internet is. Our last round was about 20 million bucks. I think we raised about it's funny, I can't remember. I think I selectively can't remember. 60 million something was the total amount, something like that, maybe less. But the last round we raised was in January of 2001 by Sequoia Capital. The partner was Mike Moritz, who is a pretty famous investor, if not one of the most famous investors in the venture capital world. We had Macromedia at the time was a very big company in publishing. Now it was acquired by Adobe, but we had big money behind us. And it was the last significant round, I believe, of financing in California before the Web 1.0 bubble burst. And yeah, the time you could feel it. Like we went to see, there was this company called, it's funny that I'm now in the pets business. It was called pets.com. And there was this little sock puppet character that was on TV all the time. They never made any money, but they just kept raising more money. They never had a business model. Again, history repeats itself. I think we're about to see some similar themes in this recession that's coming and the headwinds that are coming. 
I remember going into the pets.com office because we were looking for a new office space because everything got really cheap in San Francisco because everything was collapsing. And literally, it was like God went through and turned everyone into salt. I mean, it still looked like some of the chairs were still moving from the people that just sprinted out of the office. The seats were still warm. And so it was the last significant round of financing in January. I guess it was like, yeah, 2001. And then we quickly had to cut costs, do layoffs, and build a business because all of our advertisers went away overnight. Well, you probably should have been building a business from day one though, right? Well, that's my philosophy now. And this is the first. <laughs> well, and here one second, if you don't mind, you got to let me cut in a lot more because you jump into so much fucking detail that it's just like you start losing me and everything because you okay. didn't say this till right then before you were in Seattle, right? For the other two companies. And now you're magically in San Francisco. So you moved to San Francisco to start Adam Entertainment or whatever it was called. Yeah, I've had about 80 cans of Coke. So <laughs> it comes in baggies, not in cans. Yeah, it feels like it today. So we started this company, Adam Films. We acquired all this content. We started growing. We raised capital. We started spending a lot of money to acquire customers. We got a lot of notoriety. And we could tell that the market was starting to turn sour. We started to see that there was layoffs at the time and the market was getting more difficult. And so we decided to merge with another company that was based in San Francisco. And that was called Shockwave. And Shockwave had an advantage in that the company that owned Shockwave was a company called Macromedia. And they basically had the software that created animation on the internet. And so our idea was, wow, let's combine companies. We do film, they do animation. They have a lot of money. They can bring great investors. We can bulk up and survive through this coming period that we anticipate, which was the famous or infamous Web 1.0 bubble. And I'll slow down because I think the story becomes interesting. At the time, we had a billion-dollar valuation before we did this with $15 million in revenue. And when you said, should you have a business model from the beginning? Of course. But just like we've seen today, like a third of all the Russell 3000 companies are unprofitable that are public. There's a lot of companies that have been incented to grow really, really fast. And that's because of interest rates being low. So going back to where I was operating this startup, Everyone was incented to grow as fast as you possibly could and acquire customers. Who cares about the business model? And so at the time, I grew up as a young, you know, I was in my mid-20s, late-20s, thinking, well, this is the way to do it. And I remember talking to some of my older business mentors, and they'd always be like, you know, eventually you're going to run out of cash. You know, the valuation has to go up over time. You know, this has to be a real business because we were burning a lot of money. At the time, we weren't incented to do that. And again, venture capital at times can run really, really hot and incense in entrepreneurs to grow really, really fast. And that's great until you have to make a correction. And so that experience with this business in San Francisco, where I had to lay people off, get the company profitable, I laid myself off. It really made a mark on me as well in my career that growing fast and scaling as much as you can is, is great. But inevitably, you have to have unity economics. You have to have a business that works. It's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. It's one of the reasons why I become a turnaround guy is I didn't have that experience when I was younger. It was get as big as you possibly could. Who cares about profit? And so a lot of those lessons I get called on today about how do you work through a recession? How do you optimize your business? And it all came about because of this Adam Films experience. And eventually it did monetize. So Viacom, the big media company, ended up buying it many, many years later for 200 million bucks, 
the return on investment for any investor that was still in the business was probably okay, not great. So it wasn't like an awesome outcome for investors. It survived. It had kind of a, a popular win. Viacom bought it. That's sexy. But inevitably, it taught me to really build a business that can endure versus be kind of a blip on the radar of sexy in terms of growth. Well, how rich were you before you started, Adam? And it keeps saying Adam Entertainment because I'm looking at LinkedIn. It says Adam Entertainment. You're saying it's Adam Films, A-T-O-M Films? Yeah. We changed the name multiple times. Okay. So whatever. Uh, yeah, before, yeah, before you went to Adam. A couple million bucks. Being a W-2 employee? Yeah, but when you go public and your stock has a huge pop, you're on paper worth a lot. Yeah. So you had shares in the company because they were small. Well, I don't know how big the companies were, like Real Networks and the WRQ one that you originally started at. Well, yeah, WRQ was a private company. And so really there was no liquidity in the company, meaning it never went public and it eventually sold to a private equity firm. So no one really made any transformational money. At Real Networks, we didn't make that much money in salary, but we had a lot of stock options and non-qualified options, meaning their price really low. I think my options were like at 15 cents and I had a, a bunch of options because I was an early employee and they couldn't afford to pay us. So when the company went public, just like you've probably talked to many guests like this, all of a sudden you're faced with a nice slug of wealth. Obviously that's great. I think foundationally, if you can get your employees to think like owners versus renters, right now, you know, the salary is renting your time for work output. That's directly correlated to your work output. If you can actually get people invested in the business, now you become a capital allocator and those people could go on and make transformational wealth that they can pass down through companies they start. So that was another influential thing for me coming out of Real Networks was if you can build something great and you can vastly change, like generationally even, where you end up years from then. And so yeah, I made a lot of money off that IPO and that gave me some confidence kind of going into a startup environment. And then so out of Adam Films, you only did that for a couple of years. Were you worth the same amount, worth less, worth more? I can't even remember. I don't even think about it. Well, I'm just asking because I, you said it, you did okay. I thought I didn't know the company would even be okay because you said you got the last round of funding. I didn't make much money on Adam Films at all. In fact, I kind of left that experience. Some people made money at the end, but I left that experience early and I didn't want to live in San Francisco. I still was living and commuting from Seattle to San Francisco, moved back to Seattle and felt kind of broken. I felt pretty depressed because I'd never laid off anyone before. I never fired anyone really before. And I was doing that in mass. I had like a stream of people checking out, signing waivers, and I was giving them laptops to use that we strip company information off. And, it, and like, it was kind of the sea of anger and tears. And so you'd have to be a sociopath to not have that affect you. And so I went back to Seattle and felt rather defeated. Real quick, how many people did you fire? How big was your company at Adam Films? Well, over a hundred people were laid off. How big was the company before you laid them off? Like how many employees? Definitely under 200. So it was well over half the business. Did you do it in mass or one by one? In mass. How did that go? Did you bring them into a boardroom or something? We had two. Actually, when we merged with Shockwave in San Francisco, we laid off a bunch of the team in Seattle, which was heartbreaking. We did that in mass because we were moving most of the team down to San Francisco. And we were brought on, we being Meek and I were brought on to run the business in San Francisco. And then we did it again when we were having to lay off people in San Francisco. So it, we did it twice and we did that in mass. And you learn, hopefully, 
from your upbringing, your behavior, how to do things with respect and integrity and empathy. But yeah, you can be the nicest person in the world, but the decision to lay someone off is solely on yours as the leader. And it's due to your inability to plan that caused this to happen. And so I always take full ownership for those types of decisions. I'm going to start calling you Jocko. <laughs> so yeah, so oh, you go yes. back to Seattle. Now we know how you got down to San Francisco. So now it's starting to make sense. And then so you go back up, you're sad that you'd fired everybody. But it's, again, at least the business didn't go like bankrupt. It was still okay. But you personally probably made no money over the couple of years that you were a founder there of your first company. Yeah, I was technically not the founder. I was like one of the original executives. Mika, I think was, I call himself the original founder, but I was there kind of with five guys in a garage. Yeah. And so what happened there was I was licking my wounds and want to take a little bit of time off. And then two things happened. The Twin Towers came down September 11th. I saw that and I was like everyone else in the country at the time. It was unbelievable. It was not similar. Fighters flying over my house and the sky was quiet other than that. It felt like it was go time. It was just felt horrible. You just couldn't even like contemplate anything like that ever happening. And the second thing that happened is the founder of Expedia, it had been years since it had broken out of Microsoft. It was a part of Microsoft. It was a travel company. Everyone probably knows the brand. It was spun out of Microsoft because it was a very different business than what Microsoft was doing, obviously. It wasn't software. And Rich Barton, the CEO of Expedia, who's now the CEO of Zillow, was a board member at Adam Films and got to know him. And he called me about a job reference for somebody else. I don't know who it was. I can't remember. It was like an engineering manager. And I got to talking to him. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, you know, just had this experience at Adam Films. It was hard. And Rich is a very compelling, smart, gregarious leader. And he basically effectively said, get off your ass and do something. It's no time in the country to be sitting on your ass. And he was right. And so he offered me a job at Expedia. You spend your days managing details, scheduling meetings, and replying to emails. And by the time you start on the real work, the workday is half over. You can't go on this way, but it all needs to get done. How can you keep the business running without sacrificing your family and your well-being? We all want to grow, but you need extra time to do what only you can do. You eventually realize that you can't do everything on your own. You know, you need to start delegating, but you don't know where to begin. Our friends at Belay can help. Belay has been helping busy leaders with fractional staffing solutions for over a decade. Belay is the partner you need to help take your organization to the next level with its scalable staffing solutions. Belay intentionally pairs clients with US-based virtual assistants, accounting specialists, social media managers, and web specialists. Belay is offering a free download of their latest book, Delegate to Elevate, to all our podcast listeners. Just text STORY to 55123 for your free copy today. That's S-T-O-R-Y to 55123. Accomplish more. Juggle less. Modern staffing from Belay. Optimize workflow with NordPass Business, a platform where your company's digital wealth is managed. With the NordPass Business Password Manager, you will save time and energy, allowing your team to focus on what matters most. NordPass eases the burden of access to business accounts, making it possible for your team to work across devices and apps uninterrupted. Log into your accounts in seconds. Securely share sensitive data with your colleagues and make payments efficiently, backed by the highest standard of cybersecure technology. Store and access your online accounts from anywhere, 
You know, how often do you or your colleagues keep passwords and notebooks on sticky notes and scattered spots on work computers? What would happen if you had to wait to get access to certain accounts when the main account holders are off sick or on vacation? Could you imagine how much of your precious time is spent on the tedious task of resetting your or your teammates' passwords? Employees spend 11 hours a year resetting their passwords. For bigger organizations, this could represent a loss of over 5.2 million. With NordPass, you can forget about account resets because all your credentials are saved in one secure place with just one click. And login to your online accounts are seamless. Usernames and passwords populate automatically into login fields wherever you need them. And guess what? You can see NordPass business in action right now with a three-month free trial with our special URL, which is nordpass.com forward slash millionaire. That's nordpass.com forward slash millionaire. And use code millionaire at checkout. Well, while you're licking your wounds, you're saying, do you go in more detail? I mean, did you just rent your own apartment? Did you move in with your parents? Were you just going out and partying a lot, trying to not think about it? Like, what were you doing over that time? I was married with my youngest daughter is now 22. So I don't remember partying or doing much. I think it was a lot of just chilling out, to be honest. Nothing like where I went into the desert with tablets or anything, but it was just kind of not doing 90 hours a week and taking care of myself. I beefed up. I lost a bunch of weight. I think I lost like 30 pounds, but really it was about self-reflection versus external stimulus. Well, when did you get married? See, there's large parts of my life that I redact. I can't even remember. This is my ex-wife. <laughs> uh, I was married for quite a while to my ex-wife. Well, was it while you were at Real Networks or WRQ? I can help you figure uh, out WRQ. We actually met at WRQ. Okay. So you're young 20s. You got married. Did your wife come down with you to San Francisco? We commuted. What does that mean? You got on a plane and you live in an apartment. We had an apartment in, oh, hell, where was it? Larkspur, which is kind of the Sausalito area. Marin County, across the bay from San Francisco. And so we just had some corporate housing, went there. Monday through Friday, and then you'd fly back up to Seattle for the weekend? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was a lot of travel. I'm thinking of like, hey, whenever I was saying commuting, I'm usually driving downtown, which is 20 or 30 minutes away versus flying a few hours, right? But okay. But your wife went down there. Was she working at Adam Films too? No, she was full-time mom, taking care of my daughter. Yeah, so I was just hanging out with my young family at that point. Well, it doesn't sound all bad then because it's not like you went bankrupt. You still had money. You're just spending time with your family. So it doesn't sound like it was horrible. Maybe you just felt so bad about the business. But again, it's not like you had to file for bankruptcy, you know, and that you were all alone and heartbroken. Yeah, I've listened to many of your shows. I'm sorry. No, you're a very good disarming interviewer. So like you've slowed me down a couple of times. And the reason why you're disarming is there's things I don't want to talk about. And you're good at getting me to talk about it. So this, if I accelerate like 20x over a subject, you're like, wait a minute, let's slow down. There's a reason why. So I'm talking about things I generally don't talk about. But I guess I would say to answer your question, yes, I was not living out of my car with Jewel, the singer. Isn't she famous for living out of her car? But anyways, yeah, it, everything was fine. But you know, I sometimes I think your mental health can be worse than your fiscal health. And for me... I'm very all in. I'm modal. I'm all on or all off. And so when you say it probably wasn't that bad, when you're laying people off, I take that very personally. And I vowed that I would never, ever get in a situation where I was so over my skis that I couldn't fund the next payroll. I just got so angry at myself. 
And, you know, I've had to do little minor tucks from here and there, but I think every business that I've ever been associated with, I think this is still true, is still profitable and still a going concern. Adam Films may be incorporated in something else, but I, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, no, it sounds good. And I guess it depends too on the employees. If you actually liked them and thought they were good people versus if they're like assholes stealing money and not really doing a good job. But it sounds like you actually cared about the people and maybe they weren't bad employees. So, I mean, I get it. And that's a lot of people to lay off, dude. If it's like half your company, and this is your first experience doing that. That's why I wanted to point out that too. Like the other ones, you're still kind of W2 versus being one of the co-founders or one of the first few people. And again, you had to be the first person to, to do all that. So you go back to Seattle from there, and then you have somebody call you up from the board, and then you go to Expedia, you're saying? And where was Expedia? Was that in Seattle? In Seattle, yeah. Maybe like five miles from Seattle. It's called Bellevue, kind of close to where the Microsoft campus is. So then you actually commuted where you're driving, right? Then I actually commuted and I was like, why do we get in our cars and go and drive 45 minutes and get out of our cars and go into a box? And then from the box, why am I talking to someone on the East Coast? It just never has made any sense to me, just like you know, traditional education. I mean, I'm forcing a kid to sit inside all day and listen to someone. <laughs> I've just never understood it. So that's why I'm, I love the, the trend around remote work. But yeah, I was in Bellevue, commuted. Company was public when I started and had just an incredible culture where Real Networks had an incredible culture of performance. It was really sharp elbows. It was a tough place to work, but minted like warriors in business. Expedia had the same level of drive and intellect, but had a wonderful supportive culture. And this is where I started to learn that having meaning, a good mission and vision in a business, a soul, cultural values can support hardcore capitalistic drive. And those two can coexist. And the teachers that I had in this business were like Rich Barton, Spencer Razkoff, who's the CEO of Zillow for a while and is like a very well-known angel investor, tons of people that have gone on to do amazing businesses. They were all there and we were all peers, all hanging out building this business. I started a little bit later than the original team. And I was brought on to figure out how to do business travel through Expedia. And if I were to take you back to that era, booking online was still kind of novel. I mean, people were starting to use less travel agents, believe it or not. Expedia at the time had probably the best technology around air search, which is very difficult because you're searching on a mainframe and trying to come up with unique combinations across earliest arrival, earliest departure, pricing, multiple airlines. It's very complicated. And Expedia was really the first ones to really do the best in terms of air search. And so it really started taking off. And do each of the airlines like have different databases too or no? No. And this is really geeky, but they're all on mainframes. And I believe this is still true. All the airfares, except for Southwest. Southwest is an outlier. Yeah. Because I know on Google flights, you can't see it. That's the only one you can't see the price on. There's an interesting reason why, but it'll be like two hours of me geeking out on weird travel stuff. But uh, anyways, yeah, all the airlines upload the fares in essence three times a day. So there's three times a day there's price action. All of the airlines are looking at each other and they have yield management people that know exactly how to price based on how far out you are. And now they're getting better at pricing by seed and all that. Yeah, Southwest does use one of these systems. It's called a GDS. So there's like Apollo, Sabre, WorldSpan. But they had a really bad time early in the life of 
Southwest because they didn't like the fact that their fares were intermingled with other fares. And some of the travel agencies were de-emphasizing Southwest because they weren't getting paid as much. So they never wanted to be a part of anyone's sort ever again, which is kind of an amazing thing if you think about it. It'd be like the biggest retailer in the world is de-emphasizing your product like Amazon, and you just pull out of Amazon. That's kind of, in essence, what they did. And so today, you still can't book on those systems. You have to pull up a proprietary system to book on Southwest. But yeah, either way, like it's not like you have your own Airbnb where you just have people who can put their own places for listing for sale, right? Or to rent. And then I go on there to find something like it's one easy database versus going into linking Expedia, going which fares are right, what time, depending on where I'm coming from. I'm just imagining how complicated it actually is. I didn't really think about it until you had said that. And I guess that y'all were the leader back then in 2001 when you joined. Yeah. Well, it's funny you highlighted that because at the time, everyone in the space and Travelocity was number one in online travel back then. We were number two. The insight was technology-wise and intellectually, air is very difficult because of the reasons we just discussed. But you don't make money there. We originally started making more money in airfare. Travelocity did. And then we did this amazing I geek out on like Star Trek references, the Kubiashi Maru, which is the insolvable puzzle in Star Trek. Our Kubiashi Maru was we took hotel inventory and took it direct. So we actually had inventory. And we would make more margin on that inventory than what it would be on those big computers I talked about. And so the big Kubiashi Maru that I, did, I had nothing to do was the founders of Expedia. They listed hotels at like 4x the margin that we used to make. And all of a sudden, we had a lot more money to acquire customers because we had a lot of margin on every transaction. And so those lessons of how marketplaces work and supply and demand, I learned all that at Expedia. But it was the strategy piece was fun. The intellectual debates were awesome. We'd do great bare bull sessions and we'd all debate. It was felt like you're in college and you had the monetary upside. So it was a really great place to learn that heart and math, like you can build a company that has purpose. You can build a company that is very focused on growing share and you can build a great culture along the way. Now in college, I guess they debate what a woman is, huh? There's lots of odd debates. Now you're in an odd state where there's lots of interesting debates in Florida. I have a kind of like the weirdest commute on every other week I fly to Florida. So I get off the plane during hardcore COVID. Florida, there's no masks. COVID doesn't exist. I fly back to Seattle. People are basically walking in the street, almost getting hit by cars because they don't want to get COVID. It's a completely weird world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Opposite sides of America. So how long were you at Expedia? About four years, a little over four years. Okay. So uh, about 2005, you're, I guess you're in your mid-30s. When you get out, why'd you leave? Company changed significantly. So the company was started, as I mentioned, spun out of Microsoft, went public. I started the corporate travel group, which was companies buying our services for their travelers. So that was a different paradigm because, it was, again, it was travel agents primarily booking travel. So there's a lot of cool things we did there. I grew up that business it was like almost a billion dollars in bookings in three years. It was zero to a billion in bookings. That's fast by any measure. I mean, that was for a young man, that was a big business to run. And the company changed. We changed hands a couple of times. And IAC, which is a conglomerate started by a person called Barry Diller, who's a very well-known media mogul and business person, really savvy financially, ended up buying majority of Expedia and running it. And the company changed from kind of entrepreneurial to more of a financially run business a kind of conglomerate run business just wasn't as fun. And to be honest, I was going through a divorce at the same time. 
and I had a lot of life stuff going on and being president of a public company in my early 30s, going through a divorce took its toll. So it was the appropriate time to leave. Everyone else at Expedia had been leaving, including the founders, which happens when you get acquired. And there wasn't many of the people left that I loved working with. And so- And you became president of the entire Expedia? Nope, just the corporate travel group. So I don't know. The bookings at the time, I can't remember, 10 to 13 billion. So I was like a billion of the 13 billion. But yeah, it was like, we were like five to 10 people working on this and we build a really big business really quickly. Three years, like 400 to 500 employees around the world. And again, a a unique experience that at the time it felt kind of normal to me. Well, that's normal. You just kind of start something from zero and it grows. It's not normal. (laughs) It's not normal at all. But the culture changed significantly from innovation to what it should have been, I guess, over at some level is more conglomerate run, more financially driven, more banker than innovation. And then getting a divorce during all that was tough and and had a toll on me. Yeah, no, it's understandable. I appreciate you even saying that because some people don't even want to admit that, right? Or which I'd never understand because I just, no matter what, I mean, whether you have like a death in your family of a close one or other life changes, that's going to have stress where you maybe you can't work as hard or you got other stuff on your mind where you need a change just for at least change sake. So from there, where'd you go? Yeah. So that was a very crazy time. People that know me are like, is Matt going to talk about all this stuff? It was like such a bad divorce. I think everyone in Seattle knew it was a bad divorce. It was like one of those like, oh my God, that's a bad divorce. Hopefully <laughs> my kids never listen to this. Okay. Well, now, well, now you have to tell us about it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's super bad. It's like really bad. What, just like money-wise or? No, no, I'm not going to get into it. But it's just like bad behavior, money, everything. You, it's like a cornucopia of bad. But you reflect on those times and you're like, okay, what situations did I create this situation? How did I contribute to it? And you start kind of reflecting on yourself and try to have these moments of clarity, which I definitely did during that time. And in the process of this journey, I joined a board of a small company that a very good friend of mine, who's still a good friend of mine today, started that was kind of an interesting business at the time. And to be honest, I was like, anything that's not my divorce and Expedia sounds like a good idea. And so I was living in this very hip area of Seattle. I had an apartment. I was single for the first time, still in my mid-30s, still feeling good. Taking pills, going to the desert. No, no pills, no desert. Definitely, you know. You brought that up earlier. I've never heard that. Tablets. Oh, tablets. No, like like Moses, not pills. No hallucinogenic substances. Oh, I've never heard that reference before. So I figured that was going to come into play sometime. I guess not. You really already talk about tablets like Moses. I see. I thought you were talking about tablets like drugs. No, 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 no. I'm like, Matt's story is going to get pretty good later. I'm old school. Like any kind of substance where I smoke or I ingest that's like pharmaceutical. I just don't know what the outcome of that's going to be. So I'm old school where I like it in my liquid as a delivery mechanism. But long story longer is I joined this company called Empire at the time. It was an eBay seller tool business. So people that wanted to sell on eBay would use this product. It was a really easy way to get your products on eBay, would tell you what time to sell your products, had some intelligence to it, integrated with all the postal services and stuff. It was kind of like an ERP for eBay. And it was actually a bad business. It was a shitty business. And the idea was kind of interesting, but the market was too small. So you got to be careful when you build a product that's really crowded with competitors and the market's really small. You don't want to do that. And it was one of those businesses. And so I was a board member. The company clearly had go-to-market issues out of the bat. 
you could tell there was going to be a very small number of people that wanted this product. And of course, those people loved the product, but there weren't many of them. And so the board hired me to be the CEO. So I joined as CEO and I was, I don't know what I was thinking at the time. I was still going through the divorce. So I joined as the CEO. My friend wasn't the CEO. It was a little bit of a rough patch over that time with my friend. We're still friends. We survived that because it was his business. And we pivoted the company a bunch of times. It was basically like really good team, really good team, really good engineering talent, but really the wrong business. And so we started building all these different businesses. We flipped the business twice in terms of business model. We eventually did sell it, but I went from an eBay seller tool business to an ad network and then to an ad tech company. We eventually sold the company to Comscore. And the amount of money we went through to figure that out was pretty high. We got an outcome. It wasn't great for investors, but the acquirer definitely got what they wanted out of it. It was Comscore. So it was really weird. It was like hardest business to do because we literally, it was 15 of us and we basically had to pour our 40 ounces every year and a half because we flipped it twice. I won an award for best startup twice in this business, maybe three times. And I went up, it was this ad award and I'd walk up to the podium now this year's winner is, and we changed the name from Widget Bucks to Ad Expose. We had all these names. And he'd look at me and go, oh my God, it's you again. It's the same. I go, no, it's, it's a different business. It's a different business model. And he whispers to me, please, dear God, do not do this again. Because <laughs> we went hottest startup all these years in a row and it was the same business. So we pivoted that business quite a bit. Was that because you were sleeping with all the Seattle women who voted for that or what? No, it's because we changed the name. We changed it from an eBay seller tool business to this business called Widget Bucks. I get it. It was a joke, Matt, since you were single. And I know, I know. But like, who knows who's listening? And it was called Widget Bucks and it got really popular really fast. It was like these cool interactive ads that were like widgets, you know, they're like little apps. Like, so if you had like a GPS site or a TV site, anything kind of like around an interest, we'd put these contextualized ads in, just drop the code in, boom, we'd scour your screen. We'd wait what the content was about, and we'd create this cool ad and show different products related to that, price trends. And so every time you click through, we'd share the revenue with the publisher. Well, little did we know, because we weren't ad network operators, that there's these things called bots, and there's fraud, and there's unscrupulous characters. So we went from zero to a top 10 ad network. I kid you not in the span of like a month and a half. And then what we quickly figured out was it's a lot of spam. But people were like, investors were like, what are you doing? And it, like we had press on us and attention. And I was like, oh my God, we got to start figuring out how to slow this traffic down. And so we actually ended up having to kill that business because the monetization behind it was getting turned off because people that were supplying the CPCs and the CPMs to us, they're like, look, you're not converting any sales. This is body crappy traffic. and we had to pivot into a different business. Well, real quick. So then were you getting like sued at all or anything? No, but we'd have these really tense conversations. Right. Yeah. And you get it. I mean, this makes total sense. Like even if y'all weren't the ones implementing bots, everyone obviously knows this from Elon trying to take over Twitter, how many bots there are. I knew even when I like looked at TikTok, I bet 70% of it is bots with views because people get addicted to, oh, someone saw this many views or had this many likes when no one really cares whoever doing TikTok, like they could make their own bots because people get excited about how many views there are. I can't imagine how many bots there are today and everything. And this is happening to you in, I guess, 2006, 2007. So I just kind of find that interesting how you're able to address that. And it makes sense how the advertisers would be like, 
dude, like what really matters is the conversion at the end of the day. If I'm getting no conversion, I'm paying all this money. Obviously, people are going to stop advertising through your network. Yeah. So we avoided legal. Every conversation was, hey, Matt, I like you. I like your business. I like what you're trying to do. But I've written you like checks for hundreds of thousands of dollars and there's been no conversion. So I'm turning you off. This is the last check I'm going to write. And so it was like whack-a-mole. I was constantly stressed. So I go, oh, crap. I got to go from that advertiser. There's like shopping.com and Shopzilla and Price Grabber. I get all the content from them. And I'd go from one to the other and I'd have the same conversation every couple of months. I had to put like banner ads in front of my ads as like a pre-roll ad. That was my creative idea to slow the traffic down. And even the display networks were calling me saying, you know, this is crappy traffic. So I knew I was really screwed. And we had to shut that business down. We were so pissed because we felt like if we would have started with this idea and we would have gone slower, we would have built the right apparatus organization, people process product to make that successful. So we had to shut it down. My CTO was like, I don't know, what's the analogy? Count of Monte Cristo, Zorro, Batman. I don't know. He was just pissed. And he's like, I'm going to make it my mission in life to find all these scammers and shut them down. Yeah, that's what he did. So I'm like, well, tell me Elon needs his help for Twitter. Well, this is for ads. So like at the time in, this is just an ad use case. There was so much that happened to us that we use the same technology to wrap advertising because we could detect things like placement on a page, objectionable words. So we could actually, we'd add semantic analysis in this technology. We'd add all this cool stuff about performance of an ad. We built it for this other use case. And I was like, hey, why don't we see if we can turn this around and actually offer it to the advertiser because we know that this traffic's happening to everybody else, but they're getting lied to by ad networks. Ad networks would say, oh, you've got like X amount of impressions X amount of click-through, and the reporting was really crappy. Well, we figured out through this technology that in some cases, it was malfeasance, it was porn, inappropriate sites for the advertiser, and we'd start showing this data to advertisers, and boy, were they interested. In fact, I got calls, you mentioned legal, I got calls from like all the ad networks at the time, some of which aren't even around anymore, and this guy called me, I can't remember what ad network, I'd tell you if I could remember, and he said, hey, how are you getting this information? It was an ad exchange. And so you don't know where your ads are going in an ad exchange. And I said, shouldn't you be asking me, why are you doing this? Because you know this is happening. And yeah, that got a lot of attention. And so we knew that the company was building a feature, but a really important feature. And we had a feeling it'd be either be Adobe, Nielsen, or Comscore that would end up buying it. Because basically we built media effectiveness. And so we built that and Comscore bought it. And I actually left before that sale. I stayed on as chairman. And I hired the team that was really good at ads. And again, the thing with me is I was there for about three years or so and moved on to a different business and stayed on as chairman. And then that operating team were the ones that really got the business acquired. Yeah, it seems like a, kind of your MO that you kind of stayed somewhere for a few years. Do you think you just kind of get bored? Like is ADD, you need a new challenge or is there something else to that? I don't know. People always ask me that question. I do get bored. I mean, I, I do, honestly. I mean, after a couple of years, like I interviewed a guy who was CEO of Upwork at one point. It's like, if you're not learning anymore, you start getting bored. And it's like, what's the point? Like, you're going to just do the same thing and not keep it evolving and growing as a person, you know, as well. So it's like, I definitely get that part. It was actually episode 168, if you want to check it out afterwards, the former CEO of Odesk. But yeah, he kind of had four principles that he says that you need in a job. I remember one of them is growth because you do, obviously you want to make money, but if you're making money and doing the same repetitive thing every single day. It's just like, it gets old. So yeah, I get that. 
Yeah, I, you know, I'm a runner, but I'm a full on half marathoner. And people are like, why don't you do the marathon? And like, one, I'm probably like 10 pounds heavier than I need to be to be a marathoner. But two is, I just don't really want to do it. My wife's the exact same way. She does half marathon. So I thought about this as well, too. No one bitches about if you run a mile in track versus a two miler. Maybe you like the stamina of doing one mile that you have that versus two miles. Because she does have marathons all the time. And I've like thought about asking her, or maybe I have, but maybe once it's like, I'm not going to judge you because you don't run a full marathon. Maybe you run way more efficient at a half marathon and you're way faster than everybody else. And you just don't feel like doing it. If you don't want to do it, then you don't do it. So it's just because you're a half marathoner, you're running more than me. I don't fucking run at all. So, you know. <laughs> One thing is I think there's a psychology of what you said is interesting, actually, is I was brought up and I've thought about this. Do I like these stressful situations where I have to turn something around where literally the business is on fire because I learned it or is it in my DNA? And I certainly grew up in a divorced household and I've had to learn how to be kind of the man of the house early, very early. My parents divorced, but also my mom moved pretty far away from my dad. And so I was always thrust in these situations where nothing bad, no abuse or anything, but just different, not a nuclear family. And that's kind of a level of triage and chaos that kind of wires you up for anarchy. So then later I started finding my groove around these situations where I kind of like a mess. And so I always kind of step back and go, is this just what I like or is this what I learned? I don't know the answer to that question, but I would say overall, what I've learned a long time ago is most of these career decisions I've made, I don't think most people would have made them. And you know what? When I was younger, I'd be like, well, I don't know why I'm doing these things. I don't know this is the right career move. Is this good for my brand? And at the end of the day, I'm like, who gives a shit? I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit about what people think about me, except for my mom. That matters. My wife, my kids. But I don't give a shit. This is what I want to do. I want to be the half marathoner. I don't want to run the marathon. And I don't care if you judge me or not. It doesn't matter to me. It only matters what I want to do. Well, that's great that you have it because I'm the exact same way. And it's just, and anyone who's going to judge you for doing a half marathon, they usually are not the ones running at all. It's almost like, because I, I put it in my head, like that same argument though. She's, like I said, my wife just says like, I think when I said, when I asked her once, she's like, I just don't feel like it. And I'm like, I get it. Like when I ran track in high school, like I didn't like doing the 800. I like doing the mile because I've better at it. I felt better, but I'm like, I don't like running two miles. So I'm going to try to be good at something that I like versus trying to do something just because Everyone thinks, oh, I'm only doing half of something when I'm still doing way more than 99.9% .9 of people if you're doing a half marathon there. So, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, to me, yeah, maybe you just want those differences, but I guess you'll never know at this point if you're born to like it or if you enjoy it and you just kind of get in it. Because I don't know if we want to jump to pet meds today because there are still quite a few <laughs> jobs that <laughs> you have and, and yeah. we don't have no time. I don't think to go I through know. them all. It's up to you. Maybe we can talk to Rosetta Stone because that was the most recent one, right? Before... Pet meds today. We'll probably talk about the last two, if you don't mind, just kind of fast forwarding. Yeah, we, we should fast forward. You definitely have the biggest resume of anyone. And yeah, I like the I details. Know. Thank you for giving them. I'm like, yeah, it's just, it's going to take forever to get through all of them, I think. I know. I know. Yeah. I think that I'm drawn like a, a moth to the flame on, on these turnarounds. And uh, by the way, for anyone that's listening, getting to the point where, and I, don't worry, I'll land the plane on Rosetta Stone quickly, is I guess if I could impart a couple things, you mentioned running, like my track coach is still my track coach in life. I don't obviously run competitively. 
it was the roommate of Steve Prefontaine, who's probably the most widely known long distance runner in US history. And he's a track coach at Gonzaga College, which is one of the top running colleges in NCAA. And this is detail that somebody's going to geek out on this. And the thing about running and knowing the race you want to win and knowing the, the commitment to the race you want to run and then supporting your teammates, I all learned from Pat Tyson, my coach. He was so competitive, ran with the best long distance runner on the planet and imparted this ability of excellence, but empathy that stuck with me for my entire career. He would cheer almost as loud for the guy who was really bad, like not even varsity, the worst runner on the team and stay there the entire time to make sure his last runner was being appreciated to his full empathetic heart. That influenced me for the rest of my life. And so to land the plane on Rosetta Stone, why am I talking about this? I kind of got in this groove of like, okay, I'm a half marathon. I'm going to do turnarounds. So I did a bunch of weird turnarounds, weird because no one's ever heard of them and they take a lot of work. But Rosetta Stone came up and a recruiter friend of mine called me and said, hey, I've got the perfect turnaround for you and it's an iconic brand. And I was like, what is it? And they said, Rosetta Stone. I'm like, that's still around was my response. <laughs> right. I forgot about it till I saw your profile. And I'm probably sure everyone who has been listening recently, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it was, still is a business. We took it private October of 2020, sold it. It was a public company. It had a lot of problems. We're in multiple businesses, one of which was growing really fast. That was not the one I was running. I was brought on to run the language learning company, Rosetta Stone. We had another company called Lexia that taught reading to kids because we've got a big issue in this country with reading comprehension. We're nowhere near where we should be. That's a discussion for another day, but it was a really good business there. But the language business had lots of different strategies, not doing well at any of them. Very hard to do turnarounds as a public company, by the way, because investors will always tell you they're long-term oriented, but they always ask how you're doing this quarter. And took that on and came up with a new strategy, revitalized the brand, tried to make it more relevant. And we focus on the consumer business, which we weren't focused on. We were focused on the enterprise business. So selling language services to companies. We didn't get out of that business, but we de-emphasized a little bit and then focused on consumer. And we ended up growing it. And then we took it private, a PE firm, private equity firm bought it. And it was a pretty big multiple after the three or four years from when I took it on. It was sold $900 million in terms of enterprise value. When I started, it was like 200 million. So we generate a lot of enterprise value in a, in a short period of time. Again, it comes down to team. It's not anything I do. It's identifying levers and getting the right team in place and getting out of the way as a coach. I think of myself mainly as a coach these days. I mean, that was a great exit. It was a fun exit because the product changed lives. I mean, people who learn a language, especially English, transformationally changed their life. And I would have so many customers talking to me about how we changed their lives. And then the business side of it, that was fun too. Watching something go from down to up is awesome. Great team members and having that collegial spirit, re-energizing a brand, that's fun too. It was good. It was really hard. We went through a pandemic during that, but it was a really satisfying turnaround, which is actually, that's the reason why I wanted to write the book because all these little notes that I took over time and these presentations and these thoughts, I felt like takes me an hour and a half verbose to say anything. And I thought, how do I get all this complexity down to a FICO score equivalent for business? You know, take a, I call it the insight score. Like, how can you determine if you can be a market leader? How can I do that so that I could just say in 30 seconds, I could tell you. And Rosetta Stone was the inspiration for that book, but it was a very satisfying result. It was actually, the board was awesome. I remember our last board meeting. I knew this would be the last time we'd all meet as a team. 
the CEO. I was a co-president with this another gentleman like Nick Gade and the board. And I actually cried because I knew, I knew that would be like the only time we'd hit this, you know, the tournament win. I knew this is the only time the team would be together. And we were in a pandemic. It was just a lot. You know, I left it all on the field with that job. I just worked as hard as I possibly could. So we took it down as a private company in October, 2020. And then we actually sold it again to another business three or four months after that. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. Thank you for coming on and telling us about your experiences. I guess, what's the book again? So they can, I guess, hopefully hear about these other companies that you've been involved with and can tell you have a lot of experience from you telling us your story so far, but where could they get the book to learn more about your entrepreneurial experience? Yeah, it's available everywhere, but you can go to my site, startupwhisperer.com. You can find it on Amazon and every other site if you just type unlock Matt Hewlett. But if you want to get a little bit more insight and get some content, startupwhisperer.com. Yeah. And I think people probably look for you on LinkedIn and then they can add you and then they can see all the companies that you've been a part of and are helped grow and maybe connect with you there. Maybe if they want to get more details and see maybe in a couple more years, if you want to help turn around their company, right? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so yeah. How's going to pet meds now? I mean, you've been there about nine months or so. I mean, you're still new into that. What made you want to take that job? It's the first time I've been a public company CEO. I'll give you the left brain first. And this is also a business size that I'm comfortable running. So it's not something that's going to like crush me. It's not like I'm taking on a multi-billion dollar business. Well, what's the size of the business? Uh, we're close to 300 million bucks. We did about 270 million or so profitable. Been around for 26 years. 270 million in profit? 270 million in revenue and profitable. Yeah. Okay. That's I know. I'm making sure I'm like, those are quite some good margins. <laughs> Hey, and this is where like when I say profit and I'm in the e-commerce space as a retailer, people are like, you're profitable? Right. Yeah. I thought you were 270. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's why I was like 270 million in profit. I'm like, oh, I didn't know you were Amazon basically. I don't even know what their profits are, but okay. You have to say, how many employees are there? Yeah, about 200. They're all on Delray Beach? Pretty much. I've brought in some new team members that are scattered across the US, but yeah, primarily Delray Beach. Okay. So that's what we're talking about. You're in Florida, that's Delray Beach, Florida. And so I guess you're talking about traveling all the time, huh? You're using Expedia, I imagine, right? Sadly, I'm booking direct on alaskaairlines.com. <laughs> <laughs> I can take that part out in the interview if you want. That's okay. Look, it takes a couple of years to do a turnaround. It's probably the quickest company where I've come in and determined the right strategy. Uh, it's a business that hasn't invested a lot in itself. So there's a lot of things we have to build, which is almost as frustrating because you kind of know where you want to go, but it's just taking you a little bit longer to get there. And so this does feel like I'm building up to more marathon training than half marathon training because usually it's the opposite where I have too much, like too many team members, too many strategies, too much stuff, and I got to trim it all down and refine it. This ain't that. This is building stuff up and focusing on one particular strategy. So it's a little different for me. I like it though. It's it's very fun. And you don't get tired of the quote unquote commuting, which most people would call, I guess, flying all cross country. I mean, that's like the furthest you can go basically, right? Yeah. In the continental. Yeah. No, I don't. Is that your relaxation time? Yeah. I read a lot. I just load myself up with technical stuff to read or just stuff I want to read and email. So yeah, I'm going to slow that down a little bit, but I'll still be out there quite a bit. But yeah, 
I don't really get tired of traveling that much. Well, that's good because you do it a lot. So it makes sense. I don't think you would do it if you don't like it, right? And it's the same thing with, I guess, moving to different companies or whatever. So it's good kind of you're built for that. I guess kind of looking back and all your experiences, is there any last words of wisdom you have for any entrepreneur listening? Yeah. I'm not trying to plug the book, Ash. I didn't write the book for notoriety sales or anything. As you know, you don't write a book to make money. Yeah. And you're good on the pre-interview because most people don't have on who are, are authors. I think you're only a second one recently. I had you on because all the experience. And again, we didn't even get to talk about half of it. So that's why I didn't mind you talking about her. If people wanted to learn more, that's all good. So yeah, yeah, no. And I, I actually kind of suck at social media and I kind of suck at self-promotion. Although my friends laugh like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing because I, I didn't know you had friends. It was, there's a trade-off. Like, you know, there is a trade-off on where you spend your time. But you asked me a pointed question. I guess if I look back at everything, and I, I mentioned this in the book, that's why I mentioned that I'm not trying to plug the book, but there's a movie, City Slickers, with Billy Crystal. I like the movie quite a bit, and Billy Crystal's younger in it. Maybe it's in the mid-90s. And there's this kind of surly old cowboy that is kind of the father figure. He seems like the antagonist, but he's actually a protagonist, but teaches Billy Crystal the lessons in life. And he starts out the movie and ends of the movie with, it's only about one thing. And Billy Crystal looks at him and says, what are you talking about? He's like, what do you mean one thing? He's like, exactly. It's just one thing. Figure out what your one thing is in life. And I go back to the focus piece, not focus just on business, but like, what do you want to do? And just focus on that. And so getting good at the focus, what delights you? What do you want to focus on? Saying no to distractions. You know, I like the Warren Buffett goal setting strategy of write down 20 things you want to do and then cut off everything below six through 20. Get that focus down. And the focus could be not just professional pursuits. It could be other things. But get that focus down because there are trade-offs to be exceptional at something and to live the life that you want. And don't live a life where you feel like you have to prove yourself to somebody else. No one really gives a shit about you except your immediate family. You're living inside your own head. So I find that that focus, I wish I had that later in life, that focus would have changed some of the decisions I made to the better. And so, yeah, I think that focus and being really mindful about where you spend your time, what you put in your body, what you do to your body, how you're thinking is very important. Well, what decisions would you have changed? I probably would have stayed at some jobs longer. I probably wouldn't have been an asshole earlier in my career, kinder, more empathy earlier in my life versus now. Well, thanks for the reflection on it. Yeah, I think it's good to have that reflection. And I, I could definitely tell you're a movie guy. I've never had so many movies dropped on the podcast. I knew about half of them, but I, I've, I've heard, I think, maybe 75% of it total. So I do have friends. <laughs> I was joking about laughing about no, the friends no, thing. No, 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 it's funny. It's funny. No, the reason why the movie thing came up is I do have friends. I rarely see my friends because I'm always traveling. It's kind of like my tour of duty with these jobs. And I've, I'm apologetic when I see them. But I'm just very focused on what I'm doing right now. And I went out to have beers last week, two weeks ago, and it was a really fun outdoor beer area. And they're like, oh my God, Matt Hewlett has left his house or he's not in Florida. And I'm like, yes, I'm here. And I hadn't seen these two guys in a while. And they're just phenomenal entrepreneurs, very different. And I get so jazzed up when I talk to people. I don't know if you can tell I'm very verbal. And this guy <laughs> looks at me, he's like, you're like the Robin Williams. Like, there's so many weird references in movies and stories. He's like, I can just watch you go. And I was like, I guess that's a compliment. Seen The Sixth Sense? Oh, yeah. M. Night Schmalian. Yeah. Are, are your friends in the room with you right now? I see dead people. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the only good movie that he did. 
Unbreakable was good, but yeah, I, I can riff deeply. <laughs> yeah, I can tell, dude. I don't know. I don't know who made what any of these movies or anything. Anyhow, well, thanks for coming on doing the interview. I think it was a great one. And again, I guess people can go visit the Startup Whisperer, right, to learn more and check out the book. So thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing what you do. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You're compounding a lot of really helpful content for people that really changes people's lives. And it's probably a lonely for you at times doing this, but I just want to sincerely say thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for thanking me. And I guess I forgot to ask if, if you wanted anyone to thank you or say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Yeah, just go to that website. I got contact us all over the place. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on, Matt. Thank you so much. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. <laughs> See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. <laughs> Worst experience of my life. One star review. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, no, thanks, guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So, yeah, thank you. And I can connect you with somebody too. Okay. I have connections on that so I can help you get it custom made, dirt cheap. I'll share that with you. Look at that Patreon membership already paying off. Aww, look at that. Thanks for coming, member. Oh, well, I gotta thank uh, my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm gonna have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. I Get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a uh, question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit and then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I was just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? <laughs>